0: Welcome to Stories of Iceland. This is the second episode, Smoke by the Water. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. According to the Icelandic Book of Settlement, it was here that the first settler of Iceland built his farm. His name was Ingólfur Arnarson. Before Ingólfur could settle in Iceland, it had to be discovered. Since the North Atlantic is a big ocean, it wasn't easy. To get to Iceland from Norway, the settlers had to sail for seven days. The first Nordic man who is said to have found Iceland was called Nattodr, the Viking. He was sailing from Norway to the Faroe Islands and got a bit lost. For those who don't know the Faroe Islands, it is worth mentioning that they are somewhere in between Iceland, Norway and Scotland. It is a beautiful archipelago, That gets its name from the most noble of animals, the sheep. Back to Naddodur, the Viking. He came to the eastern fjords of Iceland, where he climbed a mountain to see if he could spot any sign of life. He saw none. He decided not to stay, and as he sailed away it began to snow, and he was inspired by this to name the strange deserted land. He called it Snyland, or Snowland. His story has a happy ending because he did find the Sheep Islands. But he also told everyone about the Snowland he had found. The next man of the north to find Iceland was Gardar Svávarsúl. He was Swedish. His mother saw things that other people did not and told him to find this land. Gardar sailed around the land and and thus discovered it was an island. He built a house in a place which is called Húsavík. That name translates to the Cove of Houses. Here we can also detect the similarities between Icelandic and Scots, because like there, a house is hús, like a mouse is a moose. Húsavík is by a bay that is called Skjálvándi. Skjálvándi simply means shaking, and from that you could rightly guess that it is in the earthquake belt that cuts through Iceland. I must also mention that Húsavík is a fine place to go whale-watching. You can find the shaking bay by looking at a map of Iceland and focusing near the back of the ship, I mean in the northeast, east Gardar spent winter in this island and liked it so much that he decided to call it Gardarsólmi, the island of Gardar. As he was sailing away, a man called nautvari and a woman escaped. More on them later. The third and last of the famous explorers of Iceland is Floki. He was also a viking. He came by the way of the Shetland Islands north of Scotland, which in those times was ruled by the men of the north. He had with him two other men called Þorólfur and Herjólfur. To find Iceland, Floki released three ravens. One raven flew back where the ship had come from, another flew up and back down to the ship but the third one flew ahead. They followed him and found Iceland. Floki also found himself a nickname, and in Iceland he is forever known as a Raven Floki. When the trio found Iceland, they split up, and at first everyone was happy. They could fish, and it was rather warm, and not one of them thought to himself, "'Winter is coming!' But winter came, and it was cold. All their livestock died. The spring was cold, and while climbing a mountain, Floki saw what in the coming centuries would become the most hated enemy of Iceland. The sea ice. So Floki came up with a name for the island, and this one stuck. Iceland. Iceland. When the men returned to Norway, Floki said Iceland was horrible. Heriolvur said it was good and bad, but Thorolur said there was butter dripping from every blade of grass, which meant it was really great, but people are mean. They made fun of him and called him Butter Thorolur, Which finally brings us to Ingol Arnason, and his blood brother lebr they were norwegian and in true norwegian fashion spent their time fighting and killing and they would have happily spent their life in norway if it wasn't for helga who was ingol's sister a son of a local jarl or earl as it as the title became in english fell in love with helga and declared that he wouldn't marry anyone else. The story goes that this made Leivur's cheek go red, since he was in love with Helga. To make a long story short, Ingolvur and Leivur ended up fighting and killing this chieftain's son and his brother. This made the father angry, so the blood brothers had to give up all their possessions in Norway and move to Iceland. But they needed money and slaves, so labour spent some time killing and robbing people in Ireland. While he was killing people in Ireland, he found a shining sword, which was impressive enough that his name was changed. Since the word Hjör means sword, he became known as Hjörleivur. As a whole, the name means the one who inherits the sword. The newly named Hjorleifur also married Helga. Before heading to sea, Ingólfr decided to seek information about his destiny through the pagan rite which is called bloat, and there he got confirmation that he should go to Iceland. But his blood brother Hjorleifur wasn't interested in performing a rite to get the blessings of the gods. Ingolvir and Hjörleivur sailed their ships together for Iceland, but split up when they found land. Ingolvur had brought his high seat pillars with him from Norway. They were a symbol of his powers and of the gods. He threw them overboard and declared that he would settle where the pillars would land. He made a temporary camp in the south of Iceland, where he spent his first winter. Hjörleivur had landed not far from there— and at once started building houses. In the spring he sent two slaves out with an ox to plough, but after a while the slaves returned and said a bear had killed the ox. Hjörleur wanted the bear dead, so he and his men went into the forest to hunt for the animal. But what Hjörleur didn't know was that there were no bears in Iceland. The slaves had killed the ox themselves, and now... When Hörlevar and his men split up in the forest, the slaves killed them as well. The bodies of Hörlevar and his men were later found by Ingolvur, who proclaimed that this happened because Hörlevar didn't seek guidance from the gods. Other people might come to the conclusion that this is what happens when you enslave your fellow human beings. But as a blood brother, Ingolur had to get vengeance upon the Irish slaves. He realized that there were islands to the south, and correctly surmised that the slaves had fled to there. He hunted them down and killed them, and to this day these islands were called Vestmannaegar, the islands of the western men, because even though Ireland is to the southeast of Iceland, it was seen as a western island by Norwegians. Ingoler still hadn't found his high-seats pillars, so he spent the winter in the houses that Herliver had built. He kept searching for the pillars and finally found them in a place which got the name Reykjavík. The name simply means Smoky Cove, and is derived from the steam that rose from the hot water springs. Not everybody was impressed. One of his slaves... Asked why on earth they had spent all this time going through the wonderful southern country and then settled for this piece of crap site. But Ingolur had decided, and today the symbol of Reykjavik includes the high seed pillars of Ingolur. The year of the settlement of Iceland by Ingolur was in the 19th century, calculated to be 874. If you find yourself in downtown Reykjavík. You can visit the wonderful Settlement Exhibition 871 plus minus 2. The name refers to the age of a layer of volcanic ash, which has been called the settlement layer. In Iceland, layers of volcanic ash have been used to date archaeology digs. So the settlement layer got its name because all remains of human activity had been found above it. The layer had been dated, using core samples from the Greenland Glacier, as being from the year 871, with a margin of error of two years. Today the layer has been redated as being from 877, but the fact is that we don't really know. The settlement exhibition is built around an archaeological dig, where a building from the age of settlement had been discovered. You can see with your own eyes the shape of the building where it stood. Little to the north of the building there are the remains of a wall underneath the settlement layer, implying that Iceland might have been settled sooner than the official date. Was this wall a part of buildings from the settlement of Ingolur? Well, let me answer this question with a story. In the 1990s, there was an archaeological dig in downtown Reykjavik, and the head archaeologist was being interviewed by a local television station. He was asked if they had found the site of Ingolur's farm. The archaeologist, tired of answering questions like this, quipped, Ingolvr, Who? That answer reveals a split in how Icelanders view their past. When Icelanders were fighting for independence from Denmark, they had to build a sense of national pride. Some people even claimed that the Viking settlers were literally giant men. But it was the stories of the past that brought a sense of national unity, and so they were often presented as being literal truth. After Iceland had become independent, scholars became increasingly more critical of the historicity of these stories. But, at the same time, they were, and to a certain degree still are, taught as they were true in Icelandic schools. So the archaeologist was trying to explain to the viewers that the story of Ingolud was not to be believed literally. There might have been a settler in Reykjavik who was called Ingolvur, but the story was written down much later. When Hjörlevar gets his name, the one who inherits the sword, it is an ominous sign that he will be killed. His refusal to seek guidance from the god also shows us that the Christian man who wrote the story clearly preferred a devout heathen to a non-believer. We can also see a Christian influence in the stories of the early explorers of Iceland. In the story of the ravens Floki sent to find land, we can see echoes of the Old Testament story of the flood. But there is also internal conflict in the logic of the story, which tells us something about the people who wrote them. We are told that before the Vikings arrived, the papar were here. They were Irish monks who valued solitude. Of course, they weren't settlers in the true sense of the word. A settler must be someone who is going to live in the land for generations. But even though Ingol is called the first settler, we are also told of someone who settled before him. Remember that Gardar, who named the land after himself, had with him a slave called Nautfari that escaped. He was the first to settle in Iceland, and he did so by the shaking bay near Húsavík. So why is Náttfári rarely mentioned, even today, as the first recorded settler? The most likely reason is that a slave wasn't considered important enough to be called the first settler. He was also Irish, which wasn't fancy enough. His name is cool, though. In Icelandic, Náttfári means one who travels by night. So, even though the first settlement of Iceland were likely in the latter part of the ninth century, we will never know who the first settlers were and exactly when they arrived. If you have jumped to the conclusion that as the alleged site of the first Icelandic settlement, Reykjavík has always been a seat of power, you would be excused. But, for most of Iceland's history, Reykjavík wasn't really important. So, how did it become the capital? The main reason is that Reykjavík is close to Bessastadr, which became the seat of royal power in Iceland after the country was incorporated into Norway and later Denmark. But there were other towns nearby that could have gained importance from the proximity to Bessastadr. In the year 1749, one of the most important royal offices in Iceland, that of Landsfogeti, or country sheriff, was filled by a man who could be called the father of Reykjavík. Skúli Magnússon was the first Icelander to be appointed to this office. For the first few years his residence was at Bæsastæri, but he soon moved to Vede, which is an island just off the coast of Reykjavík. Which today is known as the site of the Imagine Peace Tower, a tower of light dedicated by Yoko Ono to the memory of her husband, John Lennon. Soon after taking office, Skuli Magnusson became one of the founders of the first factories in Iceland, which were built in Reykjavik. A few years later, the first Icelandic prison was built in Reykjavik, and Skuli is known to have used prisoners to work in his factories. At the same time, the office of Royal Head of Medicine was housed near Reykjavik. The factories didn't survive for long and Reykjavik still wasn't much more important than nearby Habnafjörder or the four other towns that were given the status of an official training post by royal decree in 1786. But Schooley had laid the foundation. In the year 1800, the two offices of Icelandic bishops were joined in one and settled in Reykjavík, where a new cathedral had been built. The two schools which had been run by the bishops soon closed, and a new school started in Bessastár, which meant that the Abtman, the only office higher than country sheriff, moved to Reykjavík. Also in the year 1800, the Parliament held its last session at Sínquedlír, before it was suspended. A new court that took over the judicial powers of the parliament was seated in Reykjavík. In 1818, the National Library of Iceland was founded in Reykjavík. So, in the span of a few decades, Reykjavík became the most important town in Iceland. When the parliament was re-established in 1845, it seemed quite natural that it would sit in Reykjavik. These things just kept happening. The final step was perhaps in 1904 when the Minister for Iceland took up residence in Reykjavik, in a beautiful old stone house, the very building that had been the first prison in Iceland. It is now the seat of the Prime Minister. You might think that this is a preemptive strike to deal with corrupt politicians but old buildings are a rarity in Iceland, so you can be excused when dealing with a little bit of inconvenient history. Even though the rest of Iceland has never been happy that most of their institutions were swallowed by Reykjavík, this development continued. People moved from the countryside to urban areas. There were towns such as Ísafjörður and Akurey that continued to grow, but Reykjavik and the towns in its orbit always grew a little bit more. In the last few decades, many towns in Iceland have been hit hard by the market forces that are allowed to dominate the fishing industry. At the same time, domestic production of such things as clothes has been all but wiped out by cheap imports. But many places still thrive despite that the popular narrative is, at least in Reykjavik, that towns outside of Reykjavik belong to the past, while Reykjavik is modern and belongs to the future. Today, over 120,000 people live in the city of Reykjavik, and about 100,000 more live in the larger capital area. Together, This is a large majority of the total population of 340,000. The struggle between the capital city area and the rest of the country is still one of the main lines of contention in Icelandic politics, which is exploited by politicians on both sides, instead of working towards a better future for all. Today you can find statues of Ingolur Arnason and Skúli Magnússon, in downtown Reykjavík. Ingólur stands upon a hill and looks over his domain, while his wife is nowhere to be seen. Skúli is near the Parliament building. You can recognize him by the jacket that looks like a costume worn by Icelandic pop stars in the Eurovision Song Contest in the 1980s. I am saying that it looks like he's wearing the world's biggest shoulder pads. Or maybe he just has a large chip on his shoulders, because the legendary Ingolur has a much better view. Thank you for listening. Please do, as the YouTube kids always say, like and subscribe. You can also visit storiesoficeland.com for more information. My name is Ølgnessi and you have been listening to Stories of Iceland, Smoke by the Water.